I think when you go through a traumatic experience, you, you kind of, I mean, at least for me, like when you're with someone who's dying so much of my, of my sort of after, afterlife came from realizing too, like how finite it all is and how fast he went from being a healthy person to a sick person. And that could happen to me too. It could happen to anybody. This is Here After, and I'm your host, Megan Devine, author of the best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And it might seem like a weird thing to say, but I really enjoy interesting conversations about difficult things. Real talk about the hard parts of being human is what makes us human. Hereafter is the show where everyone is allowed to talk about what's real, the good, the bad, the joyful, and the horrible, all in the service of a more hopeful and connected world. This week on Hereafter, my guest is author and advice columnist Rebecca Wolf. Her new book, All of This, explores what actually happens when the person you were going to divorce gets sick and dies. Settle in, everybody. This is a really wild conversation. <laughs> we'll be right back after this first break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional relational territory in each and every episode, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. And one more note, Hereafter with Megan Devine is currently on break between seasons. We'll be back before you know it with a whole new season with even more incredible guests. In the meantime, here's one of our most loved episodes. We'll see you soon. Hey friends. Okay, so listen, what do you do when you're just about to get divorced, but your partner gets sick? After years and years of conflict and abuse, Rebecca Wolf was ready to divorce her husband, Hal. They'd already talked about it, they agreed to it, and the only thing left was the leaving. And then Hal got sick. Like, really sick. Like, very soon-to-be-dying kind of sick. And Rebecca was thrown into the position of caregiver and caretaker for the man she had been excited to leave behind. What followed was a crash course in performative grief and the dismantling of one life in order to build the next. In this episode, we cover love, sex, marriage, divorce, grief, shame, assumptions, and personal agency. It is quite the conversation, I told you. Rebecca is a lot of fun, too, if we can say that about a conversation where we also discuss terrible things. Honestly, this episode really opens up the doors to how complex human relationships are, how desire and grief and liberation can all be intertwined. That's something we don't talk about very often, but sometimes your own personal freedom comes as a result of something bad happening. Now, you know me, everybody, there will not be a pretty bow stuck on death, no transformation narrative where it all worked out for the best, but just... Listen to the show. Content notes. This episode explores sex and sexuality, and it definitely includes more than a fair amount of swearing. Let's get into it. Rebecca, it is so good to have you here. Now, I was reading through a lot of your work yesterday to get ready for our conversation today, and there was this one line that actually stopped me. You wrote... It felt a bit like the dreams I sometimes have, where after years of living in the same house, I discover another room that had been there all along. Now, that particular line is from an essay on Refinery29 on queerness, which we will link in the show notes. But I have those, like, mysterious (gasps) 
room dream all the time and I was reading it and I was like oh my god somebody else has those dreams like so friends if you don't know what we're talking about like you have a dream you're in a house that usually you recognize or at least often I recognize and then there's a door and it goes into this whole room or sometimes for me an entire wing that opens up it's usually very elaborate yeah yeah I love that you have those dreams too because it's that's probably like the, since I was a young person, the most, like that has been the most recurring dream I've had. And it's so awesome. Like, it's such Mm -hmm. a great dream. It's like this, this idea that we have, that there's so much more that we're not aware of that, like that's going on inside of us and in our, like in all the inner cracks and crevices, like there's stuff lurking there and that we have no idea what's coming and what even exists in our space. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that's life, right? Like there are dreams you don't know or are rooms that you don't know are there. There are rooms that you yeah. wish you never had to go into. There are rooms that you spend a lifetime trying to get out of. Mm-hmm. I think for me in those dreams, I don't recall any of them feeling uncomfortable, more of the like, holy crap, this was in my house, right? This bathrooms that have waterfalls in them. <laughs> or like this, this, oh my gosh, it's been here all along. And like for me, the one I had recently was like, oh my God, my kids have been sharing a room and they could have had their own room or like I could have had my own office. Like all along there was a space and I've been, you know, I've been unable to, to, to take advantage of it, to use it. And, and there's like this sadness that like I've missed out on years of, of taking advantage of the space that I didn't know was there. Which is a really great place to start our conversation today, right? Like, can you talk a little bit about the rooms that you find yourself in now? Yeah. I mean, I, I think really it's, it was, it was more of finding a new room after Hal died and more like understanding what I could do with all the rooms I already had. And actually it's funny because I just was thinking about this yesterday because I was, I was answering some questions from someone else. And there was a question about cheating and affairs. And as I was writing about what my feelings are now, like in retrospect about having affairs in my marriage, it occurred to me that the affairs themselves were mundane in comparison to the fact that my entire marriage was really built on performance and lies. And in every capacity, I was lying to him. I was lying to myself. I was trying to fit inside a room, right? That did not feel comfortable for me. I was trying to figure out how to decorate that room with shit that I didn't like. I think for me, like coming out the other side of that, I know what I want now and I'm not willing to take the things that I think that I I need and fill the rooms that I I'm un- have been uncomfortable in for years. I think it's like, I'm, I'm really sort of at a point or I have been for the last few years where I'm just burning down the house and, and building a new one. And I'm questioning all of the materials that I used to build the original house. And like, were, were those even actual materials? Like, I don't think they were like, there was so much to my old life that I think was just me trying to figure out how to just be good and, make everyone else happy and like do the things that I was supposed to do. And now I'm like, fuck it. Like the opposite. Like you want me to, you want me here? I'm going to go over there. You want me to talk about this? I'm going to talk about that. So I think the rooms for me are, are still under construction, but they, they look, they look very different than the ones 
that I walked around in before. Yeah, I love that idea of burning the old, burning the old life to the ground. There's a poem which I'll also link in this in the show notes about burning the old year, mm. right? And just burning that to the ground and letting the smoke of that be your prayers for what's coming next. Yeah, I love right? that. And you've had to do that so many times. It's so interesting because, and I write about this in my book, like I, the reason we got married was because I got pregnant. Like everything that happened in our relationship was a surprise, right? Like surprise, you're pregnant, surprise, you're dying. Like there's this, this really kind of incredible, like full circle um, (laughs) aspect to our relationship, which was like, we were sort of thrown together. You know, we ended, we, we married because I was pregnant and we stayed together because he was dying which is sort of amazing. Like if you think about what it's very me, it's like, I don't, I never make plans. It's like things happen and I respond to them. So it's like, I got pregnant. I guess I'm going to marry you. You're dying. I guess I'm going to stick this out. Like it's for someone who like feels like, I feel like I'm a very like active with like person with agency. Like I've actually, everything sort of happened to me and it's been very passive in this way that I think for me has, has made me feel like I need to sort of exert, exert some sort of authority over the situation or some agency over the situation. Cause I'm like, wait, I, I was going to leave. I swear. Like this whole experience for me has been sort of this wait, but I don't feel like a widow wait, but I was miserable and I was about to leave. Like he left me first, but I was going to leave him finally. And I finally got the the guts to do it. And I was ready. And like, I had, I was making plans and a little bit of part of me was like mad at him because I felt robbed of, of finally doing the thing that I'd been like psyching myself up to do for so many years, which sounds crazy, like to be mad at someone for dying. But I think like, there's a lot of times when we lose somebody that we do feel anger. And a lot of that comes from, you know, unresolved feelings, unresolved the, you know, the things that we th- we wanted to do or wanted to say, regardless of what they are, even if they were like, even if they were a divorce, like I was resenting him that he could, he died before I was able to get a divorce. Like, how could you like, now I'm a widow. Now I'm stuck. I'm stuck with you for life. Like I have to write on all my, <laughs> right. on all my paperwork widowed, right? Like I'm not a single woman or a divorced woman. I'm widowed. I love that though, that the complexity, I mean, everything you write is about complexity, right? The Jenny Lawson's review of your book, she described your book as a profound work on the complexities of grief, desire, and being human, which is an awesome blurb for the jacket of your book and also correct. But that, that complexity of like, I love how you phrase that. I just worked myself up to take my power back for myself and make a decision about my life. And then the bastard got sick. Now, if you all are listening and thinking like, you don't speak ill of the dead, like we talk about what's true here, right? And and this is something that I want to talk about with you, that that experience that you had. So before Hal got sick, you had made the decision to leave. You were feeling empowered around that and like taking your agency and your power back. And then he got his diagnosis. Were there times during that whole illness where you felt like you had to perform as the happy wife? Oh, for sure. Mm. I mean, I was in survival mode for sure. So my priority was like making sure that I was there to be his advocate. Like that's something that I knew I had to do and something that I was very okay with doing. But yeah, like when you're, when you're the primary caretaker of someone who's dying, like you're, 
like I, I wasn't even really able to explore my own feelings as it was happening because for me, it was like, I had to take care of him. I had to go, you know, we were, we were basically living in the hospital for four months. I had to make sure my kids were okay. I wasn't even in a place where I could really, you know, my own feelings and were, were not, I, I didn't even know what they were yet. I was just like, oh my God, this is happening. Like I have to be, I have to be on my A game. And I was like st- very stoic and I wasn't emotional in a way that like I'd never been before. Like I cry at everything. And I think I was, you know, I was like a little soldier. I was like, you know, doing everything I was supposed to do, doing everything right. You know, there's sort of a relief when you're, when you're so, when someone's really sick and your, your job is to do sort of all of the, like all the medical stuff is very, um, it's not emotional. It's like you sit down and you have these meetings with these doctors and you're talking about all the stuff. And it's like, at least for me, like I, I was kind of relieved to have all this work to do where I didn't have to think about my feelings. Right. It was like, I had to make sure that he was taken care of, make sure he was okay. Talk to the doctors, get him from point A to point B tests. And this is, and that's, and you know, when you're really busy, you're not necessarily thinking about your feelings, but you know, everyone comes to you and they feel sorry for you. And they're so sad. And like, they, are you okay? Are you okay? And like, you know, they get a, you know, they had a whole team of, of social workers who kept, you know, who were like, we have these social workers for you to talk to. Can you talk to them? And it was like, I, I really didn't, I, I didn't want to, <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't need to, cause I definitely probably did, but I was, I was like, I have to keep, I have to keep it together here. Cause there were so many conflicting feelings that I think I was like, nope, I will not engage. I will not acknowledge anyone who's trying to like, you know, I didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me. I was like, we're just got to get through this. But I knew, I knew that I only had to do it for a certain amount of time. Like I knew that he was going to die soon. His prognosis from the beginning was that he was going to die soon. So for me, knowing that this, there was an out, knowing that there was an end to it meant that I could be the wife that he needed at the time. If he were to have gotten a diagnosis where he could live for a year, two years, three years, five years, I could not have been there for him in that way. And I know women right now who are in that position, who are with a dying or a a very chronically ill partner and don't want to be with them anymore and are doing it because they feel like they need to and have to, and it's their job. And I think women take on all the time, you know, the caretaker role to people they don't want to take care of anymore. You know, we raise kids for 18 years or, you know, we're still raising kids and then you're doing it again. And I think it's not just with a partner, but with a parent. And I think when those parents, partners, people die, there's a lot of fucking relief and that's absolutely valid. Like it's so valid to feel relieved. And there's really not, you know, we don't, we don't like leave a lot of room to to have those conversations in a way that's supportive. It's really fucking hard to take care of a dying person, whether they're dying for a week or a month or a year, you know, it's, to me, there's no harder thing. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. exhausting. And it's relentless. Yes. It's relentless. And, you know, just as you were saying, like you have, I mean, you do have choice in the matter, right? Like you can always say, I'm not doing this. But, but then who will? Of, That's the problem. Exactly. Like but else, who will? Yeah. Who's going to do this if I don't do this? So there are all of these impossible decisions. And it, it's like we don't we don't talk about this because there's that sort of 
puritanical recoil of like you have to do this like if you loved them you would really do it like you you would do it joyfully and cheerfully like this requirement that we do hard things joyfully and cheerfully Mm -hmm. is so not okay and I think like I when you're talking about like the social workers are coming to me saying like let's talk this out about your feelings and you're like no tactical only tactical only I wonder what it would have been like if a if a social worker or somebody had come to you and said this seems really complicated. Yeah. Do you want to talk about what it's like to be caring for a person you were ready to leave? Yeah. I mean, nobody, they didn't know that, but yes. Yeah. And and that's, but that's the thing is too. It's like the, the assumption is that mm. this is the love of your life or this is someone, you know, it's assumed that you're in deep grief or that you're deeply sad that this person is, is, I mean, obviously like, yes, no one wants to see anyone in pain. Exactly. There's that human element of it, right? Like for, for sure, you, you snap into the I am a human caring for another human and I love them as a human. Yes. The person yes. is a different story. Yes. But the human is who I'm showing up for right now. I just I wish that there was a way to screen for that when married couples or if you're coming in taking care of a parent i wish there was a way to screen for what was the relationship like before you walked in this door yeah because if we have that conversation then the social workers and the doctors and the palliative care teams they know the ground you're starting from right and it doesn't cause more suffering for the primary caretaker to be like now i have to pretend that my mother wasn't abusive for the last 40 years of my life right which is such it's you know and i think i think probably the, the nurses, I'm sure, pick up on that. And the nurses know. The nurses, nurses always know. Nurses know everything. The nurses are not. Their nurses are always the ones. Everyone else, I had issues with the whole time. And the nurses were a uh, fucking amazing. Like I'm still friends with the nurses that I met when I was there, and they get it. They see it. They see. They see the full humanity of their patients. And and a lot of patients who are dying are awful. They're so mean. They're in pain. Yes. But they're also like, there's all sorts of stuff going on and they're so mean, like they're so mean. So trying to be nice to someone who's so mean to you all the time, like they, they get that. And they like, I feel like, you know, they, they see you, they see you. Yeah. But no, it's complicated. And I, I, I would venture to guess that almost always it's complicated that nobody goes into anything without having multiple, you know, no one goes into a death without having all a range of feelings. Um, and, and that can include relief. And I think it often does when we don't talk about that. We don't allow ourselves to have those feelings. Like we're depriving ourselves of the space of the room right of this room for us to explore what it is to be a human and what it means to die and to live and to love and that it isn't just one thing you know we like we romanticize love so like you know marriage and love and it's like and 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 the and happy ending we want happy endings and we want death to be beautiful and and loving and all of these things that you know it, it's we we like we've seen too many movies right like <laughs> there's no trope. Like there's no widow relieved widow trope, like certainly not a slutty widow. I was like, I was actually doing research because I'm doing a a column right now on, on dating as a widow, because it's like, you know, the idea of being a widow who like wants to fuck, especially like soon after the death is like, like all the pearls are clutched. Like, Oh, totally. You can't go to like an article or a forum or whatever, and not hear people just like, it's too soon. Like what a slut. Like it's, whoa people were people get mad at it your misogyny is showing it is yeah wild how it is wild 
and the opinions. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no. It's just like how you're expected to just like, just like to be a celibate nun, you know, for however many years it's like, I don't know, like what's socially acceptable. Right. If you, if how you many months ask, is that? Right. I think if you Google it because you can and like get an answer, I think that they, it's like, you can start dating a year later. Like that's right. okay with like the people. According that- to whom though? I'm Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been talking with Rebecca Wolf, author of the new book, All of This, a memoir of death and desire. 
let's get back into it. It's a really fun show. Here's my question, though. So the week of Matt's funeral, I had probably four or five people come up to me and say, my wish for you is that you get married again as soon as possible because you're so beautiful and you're so smart and Matt wouldn't want you to be alone. So we're like, body hasn't even cooled yet. Wow. Right. And then I know a lot of people who have either dated or had hookups soon after their person died and they get judgment for that. Like, you can't win. You can't please people. So do whatever you want, right? Like listen to your own needs and ask yourself what you need. And I love that about you that you're like, okay, this was not the marriage that I wanted. I was getting ready to leave. I didn't get a chance to leave on my own terms. And then I was forced into the caregiver role, which I did with love and compassion and humanity because I am a human and there was relief after he died. And now I'm going to do what I want, right? Yeah, that was a really great summary. (laughs) Thank you. But that's, this is the thing, right? That all of this, the entire, the entire house with all of its rooms that we've seen and we haven't seen, you get to make choices yep. about what you build and how you inhabit those rooms. And we have to start talking about not only that you have the right to design the rooms you inhabit, but also we have to start talking about what is actually behind all of that judgment. And as you said, pearl clutching and I mean, misogyny is the answer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's also God, I love I love this house analogy and I'm going to just like keep going with it because we have so little imagination when it comes to how we construct our our lives, right? It's like there's a kitchen that looks like a kitchen and a dining room looks like a dining room and the bedroom looks like this and this is where you put your this and if it doesn't have a closet then it's not considered a bedroom and we just go along with this sort of this is what it is, right? And we don't think like is it possible to have a bedroom here to, 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 do you like, we, we just go along with like the traditional structure of a home and this is what it is. There's so many different ways to have a relationship, to build a life, to raise children. And we just sort of, we move into these homes that are pre fab or that have been, you know, that have, that are, are, are designed the way they've always been designed with the materials that have always been in there. And we just, that's what it is. We don't question any of it. Right. We bend ourselves to those made environments. Right. Right. Yeah. And then we fill those rooms based on their size and, and, and the, where the, you know, we put our, our bed based on where the window is. It's like, we, we really don't, or don't, they don't get ourselves a space to imagine a different kind of home. It's just the how, you know, it's like when you're a kid, you draw the like square with a triangle top and the two windows and the door. No matter what you've grown up in, that is what you draw. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So it's like we, it's so deep in us to think that this is what it's supposed to look like. And for me, I think I've been doing so many exercises on like, what am I defaulting to? What am I automatically assuming needs to, this needs to look like, oh shit, this isn't what I want. Why am I seeking out something that I don't want? Like what, like, because that's what I think I want. And then I get there and I'm like, wait, I don't want my house to look like a square with a triangle and a little, I want it to look different now. Like I lived in a, in this, I don't want that anymore. Yeah. What does that look like? Where do I get the materials? Oh shit. Like this is, it's like, like that's where I'm at. I'm like, how do we question everything and how do we build new paradigms and how do we find ways to normalize all the different things that we've felt shame about forever? And how do we talk about it in a way that's not like 
we're not doing it to be provocative. We're just having conversations because this is the way it is. You're being curious about the structures of your life, all of them, all of the things that we don't think about, we just sort of take for granted. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that queer couples or same gender couples like that was, I mean, obviously still in some pockets, but like that was completely disrupting our bedrock ideas of what relationships would look like and what marriage is and all of these things. And we've come, made some progress since the 50s, some, yeah. but that that isn't the revolutionary act that it used to be. Yeah. Right. Because those structures have changed because we kicked down those walls. Right. Right. And right. it takes people being willing to kick down those walls and question those walls. And it's it's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about years and years and years ago when I was in private practice before Matt died, I saw a lot of people, um, a lot of women in their 30s and 40s and 50s who were sort of waking up to mm. the things that you're talking about. Like I live in a life in a house that I didn't really actively choose and this is not the life that I want how do I start extricating myself from this life right yeah. I think you I think it was you you had a you had a post I think it was you if it wasn't you it was somebody normalize seeing divorce as a good thing that was you right yeah normalize divorce is good news yeah 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 exactly and I think this is really tricky territory because I'm also going to say sometimes we can normalize death as good news. And it's tricky because we don't want to say someone died so that you could find yourself mm. because life is not a trade. No. Like that in our in our best vision of reality here, you would have been able to leave Hal and get divorced and learn these things about yourself and he would get to be on his own totally yeah thing mm -hmm. right that's not the story that we got yeah it's okay if there is relief and gratitude after someone dies that might not be your story and i think there's also even a middle ground in there that for however long you are completely destroyed mm. after someone dies for however long that takes little green shoots will eventually start to come back in and you get to choose what kind of life of after you build for yourself. Mm. It isn't the life that you chose. It isn't the life that you wish you had. And since you have to live this life, what do you want to build for yourself? Uh, for sure. And also, I think when you go through a traumatic experience, you, you kind of, I mean, at least for me, like when you're with someone who's dying, so much of my, of my sort of after, afterlife came from realizing too, like how finite it all is and how fast he went from being a healthy person to a sick person. And that could happen to me too. It could happen to anybody. And what am I doing with this, with this one body, right? Like, it's not even about what am I doing with my life? It's like, what am I doing with my body? It works right now. I could live to be a hundred, but maybe my body only functions this way for like the next 10 years. I don't know. So what am I doing with this body? So I also think it's super like the idea. And again, like going back to this, like sort of invisible number where you've lost somebody and you're supposed to just like close shop and lock yourself yeah. in a room for a year. Yeah. <laughs> when, if you've just witnessed someone losing their life force, it's actually super normal to be like, so to be turned on and to like want to fuck like immediately after it's mm -hmm. actually normal. Like you're, you're an animal and you've just been with an animal 
who's died and you're, you are trying to feel alive, right? Cause you've just been around death and you've been, yeah. so it's actually, it's super normal to have those feelings where you're like, that is something that I, like, I started doing like a deep dive on, on death and sex and how they're related. And they're actually very close. There aren't very a lot close. of, there aren't a lot of experiences that a human body has that are just completely, it's like, it's a carnal if it's a full body experience, right. And feeling your life force, like that's sexually, sexually, if you're having a good experience, that's what you're feeling. And I, I think like there's, you know, I think this idea that we have to wait to have an experience that for a lot of us is something that we're craving, you know, is also, it's ridiculous. Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like who gets to dictate what you're doing with this life and this body, right? Who gets to make those decisions for you? And and that can even be internalized, right? Like, it's bad of me to have these desires. It's bad of me to go do this because that isn't what's expected of me. And there's this whole yeah. internalized shaming around that. Like, shame is just trash. Like, shame is just trash, right? Like, whether yeah. you're doing it to yourself or you're you're hearing it from other people, that judgment about who you are and what you're doing with your life force. Yeah, yeah. And who, and it's amazing to me that people think that they, they have any, that it's their place at all. Like yeah. it makes me so, like, excuse ang- me, like who, I didn't know you were a part of my council of internal beings telling me what I should do with my life. Like, Hmm, I'm going to boot you out. Now. It's like what we're seeing with Roe v. Wade. It's like mm-hmm. the fact that people think that they have the authority over other people's agency and sexuality and experiences. It's like the, it, it comes from this place of internalized shame too. Like people only shame other people who feel shame themselves. Preach. So it's yes. like, as soon as we can strip that back, we can really actually make big changes like globally because so much of it, so much of all of the, all of this comes from shame. It's just like, it's, it's perpetuating and everyone's just shaming each other and feeling shame. So feeling like they need to shame. And yeah, it's a giant shame. <laughs> over. I love this because this actually pulls something out that we were talking about earlier. You just mentioned and correct me if I misunderstood what you said, but the people who are controlling others' bodies yeah. and shaming predominantly women, but also anybody who is not a cis white male, they're carrying their own shame and their own pain that is not explored, not supported, not addressed. And as we've said before, hurt people hurt people. And this goes back through millennia Mm -hmm. of things. And I think where it gets tricky is that we flip into that binary of like, you have to have compassion for the people who are harming you. Mm. And we think that having compassion and understanding the pain at the root of the oppressor excuses them from their actions. Right, right. And we go back to what you've been talking about with your experience with Hal. It's like you showed up and took care of him out of a shared humanity and because he's the father of your kids and and for all of these other reasons and you can love someone and still hold them accountable for their actions you can still tell them to stop and have them stop and make them stop and you can still be relieved when they stop yes that doesn't make you a bad person it makes you human Mm. and this is how we get the world that we want, right? Where everybody yes. is allowed to talk about what hurts and they are not allowed to use what hurts to harm others. Yes. Oof. Yes. That was beautiful. Thank you. And it's interesting because so I, I talked to somebody about this yesterday who read the book and was like, 
they were commenting on the fact that I wrote about how basically as a human that he was, you know, that I had all this anger and that we had this very toxic marriage, but there was also a lot of love too. And I wrote about all of that and mm-hmm. people don't know what to do with that. Like people, they right. Want, you did not choose one or the other stay in your narrow lane. People really want a hero and a villain. Yeah. And, and they want a complicated hero, which is the same thing as a hero, right? Like sure. all, everyone's complicated and they, and a, and a villain, all villains are too, like, we all are complicated. And I think like people, you know, it's again, like we have no imagination. We're so binary. We don't know how to totally. carry more than one thought or feeling at the same time. It's because we, we, we're not able to articulate it. We don't articulate it culturally. We don't hold space for all the different feelings. You know, that the, the person, the, the social worker comes to me assuming that I'm sad instead of coming to me assuming that I'm feeling Well, not assuming, being curious, right? And being curious instead of assuming. Yes, but this, this, and and that was sort of the the experience that I was received just like across the board was just this like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. People just apologizing, apologizing, apologizing. And then me feeling more and more shitty that I wasn't only sad. Like, well, I got these people, everyone feels sorry for me. I don't, but I'm, I don't, I'm not a victim. Like, I don't feel sorry for, like, you know, but, but speak saying that, you know, and then you're dismissing everyone else and you're just, all these people right. are so lovely and, and generous and, and they're, they feel sad for you and you don't want to disappoint them by telling them not to feel sad that you're okay. Like, whoa. Yeah. But if we were, t- if we weren't to assume every time something happened, like we're just, we assume because we've been told the same stories over and over and over that this is what it looks like to, you know, to lose someone. This is what it looks like to have X experience, Y experience, instead of just recognizing that every experience is a human experience. And there's so many conflicting feelings that are happening behind, you know, and, and we don't know anything really. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be able to hold space for each other, like that's the whole, like hold space. Like if somebody like that's, that's really like my, like when people are like, oh, someone's like, what do I do? My friends, you know, going through whatever, like just give them the space to feel all of their feelings. Like yeah. tell them that you're here to listen to all of it. The anger, the rate, like don't project your shit onto other people. <laughs> yeah. Curiosity and not condemnation. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm, taglines seriously (laughs) (laughs) but this is really the thing right like we need to be able to be comfortable with the complexity in us and the complexity in front of us right like let the person let the let you in this whole story in this whole house be the whole person that you are and let the dying person be the whole person that they are right this idea that once somebody has died they become canonized and you can't talk about the rough parts of your relationship like Matt and I had a great relationship and he was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I get to be really glad that I don't need to deal with that stuff anymore at the same time that I'm really heartbroken that he's not here. Like Absolutely. we contain multitudes. Oh my gosh. And that's love too. Exactly. Yeah. There's another line uh, in your book. It says, you said, it's heartbreaking to say that you can love someone and not miss them when they're gone. That is, yeah. that is human. It, right? it is human. And I also think, you know, a lot of, grief, at least in my experience, is, is is not just grieving the fact that the person has died, but it's grieving the years that you spent with them. You know, I guess in the same way you do with 
in a divorce. I, I've, I've a lot of friends who've been through divorce and I've, my experience was very similar to theirs. And, and that I, you know, really the initial grief that I felt was for my kids and for my family. And like that was, you know, wasn't even about me. It was about them not having a dad anymore. But after that, when it was like time for me to really kind of dive into my own feelings, it, it, my grief, the majority of my grief came from the fact that I had been, you know, unhappy for years and and was like, Oh Jesus. Like I was grieving like my, my, um, you know, just all of that. Like I didn't, you know, when someone dies, you're not, again, you don't, you're not thinking about what the years of, you know, you're supposed to think about like the happy years and missing them. And I was thinking a lot about like, fuck, I was miserable for like a really long time and like thought that I could fake it till I make it kind of thing. And like, couldn't. And like, so I, you know, I, I grieved for those years and not just for me, but for him that like, he couldn't, I wanted us both to be able to come on the other side of that and have an afterlife. Like I wanted him to have one too. Right. Exactly. And there's, you know, there's survivor's guilt as I'm sure, you know, you are very familiar with and, and, you know, that is, you know, I've watched my kids grow up and he's not here to do that. And that's really hard. And just, you know, the, it makes, I feel so lucky to be here. And then I, my, you know, the other side, right. The shadow of feeling so lucky is feeling like, God, I wish that he could, that he's not missing this, but at the same time. And then there's the other side of that where I'm like, God, it's so nice to just be able to be the only parent and do this by myself yeah. and not have to deal. Yeah. And all of those things are true. All of it is true. All of it is true. The full catastrophe of being human. And also and also that I mean, this this will probably take us on another tangent that we don't necessarily have time for today. But this idea that a, quote, successful relationship is not necessarily till death do you part. Right. That loving somebody is sometimes walking away. Oh, yeah. Right. If we go back to what you were saying, like it would have been preferable if he got to live his after and you got to live an after as not a widow. That's not the story that we have, but that sometimes that separation is the most loving thing in the world. Oh, 100%. I believe that wholeheartedly, like for you and for your children, your, for your mm-hmm. whole family. I, that's why that's the, like the divorce, normalized divorce is good news. Like that's where that came from. It was this conversation that I was having with people on Instagram. Like they were pouring in, I kind of did it. I had a hashtag called how I left where I was talking about my experience. And then I never really got to leave. And that a part of me felt like, God, I just want to break everyone out of their bad marriages now. Cause I'm on the other side of one. And I'm like, Oh my God, this, this is beautiful over here. Yeah. So it turned into this amazing sort of like lawyers reached out offering pro bono work. And they're like, people were all, it was like this like behind the scene, I was like hooking women up with other people who had experience and people were helping each other figure out how to get out. And it was like the same story over and over. We're like women telling how they left and talking about how they had stayed married for their kids, not realizing that it was an act of love to leave and just to model to their children, this other, other house, right? Like this other version of what it, what it can look like to be happy and to, you know, like it doesn't have to look this one way. Like we're so afraid of like, we're so afraid of moving from the, the square house with a, with a triangle roof, but there's a, there's a really beautiful fucking well-imagined house on the other side of that, that, you know, I think I feel so grateful that I get to dwell in now. Yeah. 
we all deserve to be happy. Like it's very simple. And I think a lot of women don't think that we do or think that the, the priority is our children and our, our significant other and that they're somehow going to be happy when we're not, which is also not the case at all. Yeah. This is actually a really good place for us to talk about my my always closing conversation for season two. So knowing what you know, knowing the houses that you've burned down, the houses that you've rebuilt for yourselves, the curiosity about what houses might come next. Like, what does hope mean for you? I think for me, hope, it's so funny because hope for me has always felt passive, Mm, right? Like mm -hmm. we can't, like, it's what we want for ourselves, not necessarily what we're doing for ourselves. And I think I, I lived sort of with this want for myself and was very afraid to actually do the work to get there. So for me, hope is sort of, again, reimagining what it means to hope, rebuilding what hope looks like, finding the extra room and the idea of hope. Mm. Or rather, instead of finding the extra room, building that room myself, because that's the thing too. It's like, we don't have to wait for the room to appear. We can build it, right? We can build it. And for me, that's been my experience these last four years. How can I build? How can I build? How can I redesign? How can I relearn, unlearn? So I guess for me, hope is finding new ways to unlearn and create and rebuild and sort of reconstruct a life that doesn't have to look like anyone else's. Yeah. I love that. I love um, opening new rooms in hope, right? Like this, for me, this is what season two is all about is like, it is so awful in the world right now on so many different fronts. And it's so easy to feel hopeless. I love your definition, your working definition of hope there, that this is something, it's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping for a specific outcome. It's building a hope that belongs to you. Right. And that looks like you and that you can live in. Yeah. Being active in hope. Yeah. Like taking it, taking it with you instead of sitting with it somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't camp out with your hope in somebody else's needs to be renovated since the 40s place with a drop ceiling don't totally. don't do that to yourself Ugh, yeah a drop ceiling. Hope, <laughs> hope deserves better digs all right totally. my friend that is a great place for us to end so um, i'm going to link to all the places and obviously to your book in the show notes but what do you want to let people know where should they find you where should they look for you what do they need to know well, they can find me on Instagram at Rebecca Wolf with three O's. Um, I'm on Twitter at Girls Gone Child. And they can also check me out over on RebeccaWolf.com, which links to all my essays, columns, books, etc. I also have a book that's called All of This, a memoir of death and desire. And you can find that where all books are sold. And yeah, and it's awesome. And last little note here, you and I both did a shout out to ourselves in (gasps) our books. Your dedication is to you and my acknowledgments ends with me. (gasps) Right. I love that. Yes. 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 Let's go. I love it. Yeah. Let's normalize that too. Normalize (laughs) that too. Normalize appreciating yourself for surviving the shit you've had to survive. Totally. Absolutely. I love it. All right, everybody, stick around. I will be right back after this last break. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. This season is all about hope, and I have been both surprised and fascinated to hear how many guests bring hope up before I even get a chance to bring it up myself. But you know what really struck me in my conversation with Rebecca is her complete lack of shame around things that most people are really, really hesitant to mention. There's something really liberating in hearing somebody else claim their own liberation. 
that feels like a hopeful thing to me. I also love how Rebecca said, quote, hope is finding new ways to unlearn and create and rebuild and reconstruct a life that doesn't have to look like anybody else's. I love that we talked about how there's hope in discovering new hope in yourself. I do love a personal agency moment. (laughs) What parts of this conversation stuck with you today? What parts made you think or see something differently, whether that's in your life or in somebody else's life? Which parts of Rebecca's story made you feel seen in your own life? Now, everybody's going to take something different from today's show, but I hope you do find something to hold on to. I'd love to hear what you've taken from this episode, what new rooms are unfolding in the house of your life. Check out Refuge in Grief on Instagram or here after pod on TikTok to see video clips from the show. And that's a good place to leave your thoughts or your comments or your reflections right there on those posts. And be sure to tag us when you share the show on your own social accounts. Use the hashtag HereAfterPod on all the platforms. Really, really, the whole team loves to see your comments. We love to see where this show takes you. And with this episode with author Rebecca Wolf, we really did cover some taboo territory. So let's get those conversation parties started and tag us and let us see where your conversations go. If you want to tell us how today's show felt for you or you have a request or a question for upcoming explorations of difficult things, give us a call, 323-643-3768, and leave a voicemail. If you missed it, you can find the number in the show notes or visit megandevine.co. If you'd rather send an email, you can do that too, right on the website, megandevine.co. We want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. This show this world needs your voice. Together we can make things better, even when they can't be made right. You know how most people are going to scan through their podcast app looking for a new thing to listen to and they're going to see the show description for hereafter and think, I do not want to listen to difficult things, even if cool people are talking about them. Well, here's where you come in. Your reviews let people know it really isn't all that bad in here. We talk about heavy stuff, but it's in the service of making things better for everyone, so everyone needs to listen. Spread the word in your friend groups, your professional circles, on social media, and click through to leave a review. You could do that right now. Subscribe to the show, download episodes, and keep on listening, friends. Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end-of-life issues. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. From those daily disappointments right up through the losses that rearrange the world, grief is everywhere. Learning how to deal with it and talk about it without cliches or platitudes or simplistic dismissive statements is an important skill for everyone. Find tip sheets, trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, plus the guided journal for grief, all at megandevine.co. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, with logistical and social media support from Micah, edited by Houston Tilly, music provided by Wavecrush, and background noise provided by both intermittent air conditioning and the general sounds of living in a city. 
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 